This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Welcome to Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Noah Balmer, and today I'm excited to welcome David Ganaway to the show. Mr. Ganaway is a principal at Betterson LLP, where he specializes in forensic accounting, litigation support, uh, and tax controversy. He has over 20 years of experience consulting on white-collar financial crimes and internal uh, corporate investigations. Mr. Ganaway is an experienced expert witness in both civil and criminal proceedings and is a frequent speaker at industry conferences. Uh, Mr. Ganaway holds an MBA from Fordham Gabelli. Mr. Ganaway, thank you so much for joining me here today. Oh, very well. Thank you as well. No, it's very, very nice to be a part. All right, let's jump into it. So you spent a number of years as a special agent for the IRS, is that right? Yes, so I was agent for 20 years. And so it moved, uh, Started out as a revenue agent where I used to conduct audits of individual corporate and partnership returns and then moved into the criminal investigation division. So we conducted white collar crime investigations and money laundering and then moved into management with IRS and was in different uh, locations and finished in my career as assistant special agent in charge of the New York field office in 2007. Well, I've, uh, in 2007, I left the government and went working in private practice. And then I joined uh, you know, Peterson about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now. They're a regional accounting firm that also has forensic services here in the tri-state area in the New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania area as well. How did you first get involved in uh, expert witnessing? Did that did was that prior to your uh, move uh, to the private sector? Well, I was uh, testified as an agent as a as a fact witness during my government service, and then also had completed the Department of Justice money laundering expert witness training. So I had that mm-hmm. in the cadre, but I didn't testify that time as a, as a special agent. But then later when I went into private practice is when kind of utilized those skills from being a special agent and formulated those into both criminal and civil practice um, outside the government. Has your experience been primarily as a consulting or a testifying expert over the years? You know, most of the cases, the civil cases, you know, there may be depositions and then very rarely do the cases go to trial in, in civil cases and then criminal cases, there are very few as well. And so, but I've testified in both civil and criminal uh, cases as an expert witness. Let's talk about your first engagements. What what were those calls like? And, you know, did you feel properly prepared the first few times that you were getting into it? What was that like? Well, it was, you know, it was new and challenging. Obviously, it was a new kind of a, it's on, a dip, on the different side from being working for the government for 20 years. Now I was on the defense side. Uh, so now I have, you know, really 30 plus years of being on both sides of the aisle. So I think that's something that's kind of different from other uh, consultants out there. Um, but the first cases were involved some of the uh, accounts with foreign bank accounts internationally in Switzerland when the uh, UBS matter came to uh, came to conclusion with the IRS in 2009. And so there was major um, cases where the uh, IRS had a voluntary disclosure program. And so that's how I initially became involved in working on many of those cases that involved international transactions with uh, taxpayers or citizens of the United States that uh, had accounts in uh, 
you know, different company names so that they could cover up that the money was in a location outside the United States. And there was no, you know, the income that was not reported, uh, that they received was not reported on their income tax returns here in the United States. So that was kind of my first real start into it was the, uh, the March of 2009 when the IRS initiated that uh, voluntary disclosure program. Boy, you really hit the ground running. That's a big one to start on. Yes, it was something there was, you know, now today, I, I can't remember. There's been there's been hundreds of individuals and companies that we've helped, uh, you know, through the voluntary disclosure program. So it's been uh, something that encompasses many, many countries across, you know, from Israel to Switzerland to the Netherlands and many, many other places. So it was uh, very, very exciting. Speaking of which, you've had some international work. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's compare and contrast. How is it different working as an expert witness abroad? Well, the thing I look at is that the facts are still the facts, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just uh, but still you have to rely on counsel to, you know, to be able to provide you guidance regarding any of the nuances in the country or the court that you're going to be litigating in. And so it's really got to, for me, I have to really rely upon counsel to kind of educate me and help me with the, uh, you know, with the rules and so forth in, in the country that we may be working. Have there been any, you know, super notable peculiarities that really, really, you know, were, were a little bit of a curveball at you uh, working internationally? It's just that differently, they look at it differently and there may be some different evidentiary and more internal court proceedings of how they administer cases and how the sure. proceedings go forward. But other than that, it's still facts are the facts. And we're trying to present, you know, present the information from a financial investigative standpoint to show, you know, whether there was fraud that was committed or that someone has been taking money from, from a company or there's been some tax, you know, alleged tax fraud or otherwise that we've trying to defend people against the, you know, in the tax situations. Sure, absolutely. As a former IRS agent and a forensic accountant, uh, you must need to really know a lot of ever-changing code. How do you manage to remain an expert? Well, the main thing is, you know, it's kind of one of the new terms we've heard over the past few years is kind of staying in your lane, you know, and, and not going outside of that. And so being comfortable with the area of expertise that you have and then knowing the, the, if there's anything that's changing within that area to be aware of and, and be, you know, top of mind so that you're, you're not making any mistakes along those lines. So it's not like, you know, the internal revenue code may be thousands upon thousands of pages, but the, you know, income tax evasion or filing a false tax return is still the same code sections that it's been before, unless there's sure. been a change or anything along those lines. So that's what you really have to focus on is being, being, laser focused on the areas that you're can be qualified as an expert in. Do you do any kind of continuing education or, you know, in, or, or informally, you know, do anything specific to kind of stay up on your expertise? Yes. Well, I do both situations. I, uh, I take classes, but also uh, am a presenter and speaker for the national association of enrolled agents. So that helps me keep up with the, issues, whether it was like now we've been dealing with the digital assets. I just gave a presentation, you know, three or four months ago regarding what the IRS and how they're looking at the digital assets and the cryptocurrency. So yes, I'm very familiar with those and both take 
you know, take the courses and also am a speaker on behalf of the National Association of Enrolled Agents. Uh, is it better um, to to expand or is it better to kind of stick into a very particular niche? I think it's better to stay in a particular particular niche until you, you know, that way there you have the years of experience and you, you're not going to have any questions of being pre-qualified or being qualified in a court that you're going to be either preparing or submitting an expert witness report to or testifying in the in the hearing. So I think for me, it, it's really kind of staying more within that area of expertise. When you are first called for a potential engagement, um, what is that vetting process like for you? Um, wh- what are the things that you consider when you decide whether or not to take on an engagement? And what are the things that they're looking for in you? Well, first is how they have come across my name or they've received a referral that I can be able to provide the type of assistance that they need. And the first thing that we do at the, in the, within our firm is we do a conflict check to make sure that we haven't worked for this client, you know, four or five years ago on a separate type of matter, or if it was something that was related to the issue that we have in front of us. So we do the internal conflict of interest check. And then secondly, just from a firm perspective, along with insurance to make sure that it's within, you know, where, we need to be in the area that we need to be practicing in because we don't want to raise any concerns or any risk for for insurance on behalf of the you know the firm. So that's what we really do is make sure that we are there to be able to analyze both of those type of situations to make sure that we're a we're making sure we're taking care of the client and b we're making sure we're we're doing things within the firm make sure that the firm is protected. Besides conflict of interest issues, what else enters into the calculus of whether it's going to be a good engagement, uh, you know, for, for both you and for the attorney? Well, I think it's the, the facts that the and the issue that the attorney is trying to present. And then whether it's a skill that I have already maybe had another case that I've testified in or had that experience to be able to show, you know, the method of proof and or the calculation that I have made. And so that really, I think, supports the uh, the acquisition or the retaining of me to help them with the, with the matter. Do you turn down a significant number of cases? No, I don't. Most of them, no, no I don't really turn down many cases at all. Most of them are, you know, I do all of those type of primary responsibility checks and everyone knows the type of work that I do. So that's, you know, I really don't get a, a call to come out and, you know, <laughs> do evaluation of the of the uh, Brooklyn Bridge or something along those lines. <laughs> so that's that's just one of those things where you have to really be out there to so that the attorneys know what type of services that you can provide, and then they'll match it up to the issues that they have in front of them and how they want to cover it from a theory of the case standpoint. Sure. So one, once you've been vetted and once you've vetted them uh, and you've accepted an engagement, one of the first things that you do is typically a report. Um, what is your process for developing a report? Well, let me just back up first before we before we get to the report rep- report writing. First thing is sometimes I get called in at the initial part of the investigation or when there's an allegation. Sometimes I get called in, you know, three weeks before something's due in in court, and they've been working on it for two years. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of the gamut as it goes for you know someone in in my industry now. And so. You know, if you get the first call and you're there within the first, you know, few months of when they're going to start investigating the case, then you can start helping and looking at the evidence at that point in time and develop it over a, 
over a period of time. If you've been called in three weeks before they needed a report, then pretty much everything, everything's been, the water's already under the bridge out and things like that. And so what I do then is, again, first thing I do is understand the complaint. What's what's in the complaint, either we're the plaintiff or the defendant in that case, or if it's defense case in white collar matters, you have an indictment that's been presented. And so knowing the status of the case and where it is really first helps understand, okay, how can I help them and help the client uh, try to resolve the case of both in a civil and a criminal matter? But most of the time, you know, it's kind of more more toward the end when we get the when I get the phone call. And but from then, I look at really what has been transpired in the litigation and what areas do they need for me to review and address. And then from there, after I get the evidence and start looking through it at that point in time. Then I'll meet with counsel to say, this is what I've come come across and the evidence that I've been able to obtain. And then from there, we'll get, go and report and, and file or prepare a report based on really kind of the, the issues that are at hand and the conclusions that I've made from the evidence that I've, that I've seen. And so then that would be prepared an expert witness report provided to counsel. You normally don't get a guidelines or anything like that. The counsel's not telling you how to write the report. Um, okay. That we are doing the the writing of the report, but still opining on the facts of the of the investigation or uh, the issues that they're asking us to uh, to render. It's interesting, and this is a common refrain that I've heard from other expert witnesses: is that sometimes they feel that they should have been brought in more early to be more effective. Is that something that you've been, you've come across when, when you talk about getting brought in late in the case? Uh, is that something that you feel like you would be more effective if you had been brought in somewhat earlier? Yes, I, I believe it in both situations. And I had something that happened several years ago that um, there's a civil litigation that the defendant uh, was believed to be moving money uh, offshore. And I was retained, like I said, later in the matter after the complaint was filed. And when they hired me, I was going through the evidence. And one of the first things that I looked through and asked for was copies of the income tax returns. And so counsel said they didn't have them. So I asked for them and then actually counsel obtained the amended returns and Bank Secrecy Act reports that disclosed the location of the offshore accounts, which was a (laughs) part of supporting the case. Because at that time, they had those accounts offshore, and before the complaint was filed in this matter, they went in and cleaned up their own uh, offshore tax situations. So we actually had the tax returns that basically were the first nail in the coffin for proving the case that they disclosed to the government that they had offshore accounts. So that was something that, wow. again, if I would have been in earlier, we may have found it earlier. But again, that's one of those things that getting in at the right time and being able to analyze the facts really helped that because we had time to obtain it. If it had been three weeks before, you know, the trial date or something like that, that I was hired, then obtaining that information discovery may have already been closed at that time. And so that's the the difference there. So the timing is really, really important for me. And I, I, like, I like to be retained as early as possible. On the topic of reports, as you know, there's there's a couple different types of reports. There's initial reports, and then there's also rebuttal reports. Have you written both types of reports? Yes, uh, we do the report that that we prepare, and then uh, 
the rebuttal report from the other opposing expert. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the difference between the reports and your your strategy, you know, your strategic approach to writing both of them. Well, the first one is going to be, you know, if it's the initial report, it's going to be the evaluation of the evidence in relation to our theory of the case and the and the complaint that may be filed or so forth. So that that's going to be their looking counsel's looking for someone to to basically make the documents become alive is the way I look at it. When I mean, you're kind of trying to think take something that's complex and make it simple for the average person to be able to understand it. And so that's really my my role in that that type of situation. The rebuttal report, it's already been prepared by the other side. And then for me, it's to go in and look at it with a fine tooth comb and find any weaknesses that are that are there and then be able to exploit them so that we can either, you know, help mitigate the case to a, to a settlement or if it went to trial, then we would really use those to uh, to drill and in, in cross examination. Do the attorneys typically tell you what the objective is vis-a-vis a rebuttal report? Are they saying, "Ah, we're probably looking to settle," or "This is probably going to trial"? And and do you tailor your reports thusly, or or do you just uh, you know attack it as best as you can and then find out later? Well, I. I used to referee high school and college basketball years ago. And one of the things there, you, you call them as you see them. And that's the way I do it now. You call them as you see them. And and because you, you don't know if you're going to go to trial or not to go to trial, uh, things happen. And so I just call them the way I see them and work with counsel, you know, showing them the evidence that we have and and reviewing it that way. So I think that's 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 always been my approach. Let's talk about scope for a minute. Um, when you're first engaged, how do you make sure that you are doing everything that the attorney wants, but also nothing more than they want? How do you stay within the confines of scope? And do you often have to go back and talk to attorneys and you know question them and clarify uh, what the scope of the project is so that you're not doing too much or too little? Well, yes. Well, the main thing is if a complaint has been filed, then that tells you and kind of defines the scope for you to be going down and start do the analysis and the like. And that's what I really focus on is having that complaint, going getting that understanding from counsel that they want to want us to look at X, Y, and Z, stay focused on those issues. And then that's what we deliver. If the case, there hasn't been a complaint filed, or if we're in the beginning of a criminal investigation being conducted by the IRS or the FBI, I would then go in and look at it and say, okay, this is some of the evidence that may be damaging to us. And some of it may be a strength to us. So it kind of depends on the where, you, what timing and in the part of the investigation, but the, the, la- the latter, if, if the complaint has been filed, that's when you really focus on what's been put in writing. And that's what you know that the other side's case is about. So let's talk about depositions and cross-examinations and being questioned by the other side. Um, how do you keep your cool? What do you do when you're under pressure? How do you make sure that you're adequately prepared for what the other side is going to ask you? Um, and are there techniques that, that, that attorneys employ that have been particularly effective or particularly ineffective uh, for those sorts of situations? Well, one of the first things I do is I do the research on opposing counsel, their client, and the expert that they have. And, you know, I also learn about the judge and ask colleagues if they've had matters 
before him or her. And so, because I, I really, I really want to know as much as possible about who's on the other side. And so that's one of the first things that I do. And then, you know, when you get into depositions and being cross-examined, that's really from my training and doing it over years and then being comfortable with the knowledge that you have and the work that you have uh, compot, you know, have completed. And so basically I start from reviewing my report, anticipating questions that may be asked by opposing counsel from, you know, from my years of experience. And I work with counsel that's, you know, to go over like the status of the litigation, any calculations made and any conclusions reached so that we're on the same page at that, at that point in time. So that's really how I approach it. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you about the attorneys that you've encountered throughout your career. Are there any that really stand out as being like a truly great partner and just a great relationship, somebody you would like to work with again? Um, you know, and, and what makes that relationship great? What are the things that attorneys and experts can strive for uh, to make these relationships as effective and as efficient as possible? Well, I think one of the things from my prior experience working with the government when I was an agent and the it's called the assistant United States attorney is the federal prosecutor, right? And so after I left the, the internal revenue service had been in private practice, that was really one of the areas I focused on was to, to work with former assistant U.S. attorneys because they understood the skills that I brought to the table because they've been you know, in many, many cases with former FBI agents and former IRS criminal investigation special agents. So those are the type of attorneys that I really looked at to work with, because, again, we've been in trials together or we've been to trials where they know the agents and so forth, and they know what skills we bring bring to the table. But then also, you know, I've had many times where in the private sector, I've worked with attorneys that have not worked for the government. And so they have a completely different approach. They've been working for, you know, the defense or working in civil litigation matters their whole career. And so they have a different perspective that I then try to blend in. What did I learn from an assistant U.S. attorney? What am I learning now from the, from the civil litigators? And then how can I, you know, combine both of those together to help me be a better, better witness and do a better job? And that's how I really have kind of taken something from both sides, from the assistant U.S. attorneys that I've worked with, and then also in defense attorneys now that they have their experience as well. So it's an amalgamation. Do, do you have any any uh, specifics, anything that really kind of a, a case or a situation that really changed the way or reinforced the way that you act as an expert witness? I think the thing is, I still know how to conduct the investigations and whether it was a case in, you know, 10 years ago or, or three weeks ago, you know, fraud and, and any things like that, you, you may be surprised that you hear, oh gosh, they're doing that. This is how it's done, you know, and things along those lines. But now I really kind of focus on how, how can I take the experiences and learn and work with the attorneys and present in a manner that kind of flows in with their theory of the case and working with them, you know, so it's, it's a situation where it's kind of a, you know, it, it may be one way with one attorney and, and they do it a different way and another attorney does it. So I'm learning 
and adapting to, you know, it depends on who I'm working with because they may have different approaches and they may do it differently than someone that I worked on a typical, you know, the same type of case three years ago. So that's one of the things that I don't do is go and say, huh, I did it this way three years ago. We need to do this because it's not, it's not the right thing. So I'm really kind of, kind of being very flexible and, and following what the council that I'm working with and how, what their approach is. Do you have any last advice for uh, experts or attorneys? Yes, but particularly uh, newer experts or attorneys working uh, with newer experts before you wrap up? Well, one of the things like I started to talk about there is that, you know, you really need to know your report, you know, your own strengths. It's like they say now, you if you go for a job interview, you, you better, better take your resume and you know your resume, right? So again, for me, it's it's knowing the strengths that you have and really relying upon the prior testimony that you've uh, presented. And again, knowing how to take something that's complex and make it simple so that the average person can understand it. Um, one of the things that I always did was, you know, being firm, respectful, and educating the judge and the jury about the issue that I've been retained to, to give an opinion upon. And so that's what I really try to do is, is approach it in that, in that manner, because you don't want to come across in my experience, whether it's on both sides, if you're coming across as a hired gun, the jury can see that. And that's something that, you know, you can tell when you, when you're in the, in the trial, in the court of how someone presents it. And so that's the way that I found that it's not too good for the client that has the expert up there that looks like they're the hired gun to come in and say whatever that the that they need him to say. And I don't think that's going to be very effective for the for the client because the jury can see straight through that. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Mr. Ganaway, for joining me here today. Yeah, you know, Noah, thank you very much and the roundtable group. I really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for joining us here for another discussion at the Roundtable. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 